If you will, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Thank you. Now be seated. Well, good morning. Good to see everyone here today. Brother Marshall, thank you for the prayer. Brother Buttram for that wonderful job in leading us in song. LJ for the reading of the scripture. For those of you visiting with us this morning, I am not the full-time preacher. I am an elder here, and I am more than happy to step in when our uh, brother Laws, our, our full-time minister, is away. Today, Jim is in West Plains, Missouri, holding a gospel meeting. And so let's all pray that that goes well and is profitable for them, as I know it will be. They're hearing some good preaching this morning. Uh, this morning, I'm a little stuffy. I've had a, uh, some of this stuff that's going around. I hear some coughing in here, and it's okay. We've all got a little bit of this uh, ragweed and different things, but we'll get through today. James Walter Braddock was born June 8, 1905, in Hell's Kitchen in New York City on West 48th Street. He was raised by immigrant parents, an Irish mother, Elizabeth O'Toole, and an Anglo-Irish father, Joseph Braddock. Shortly after he was born, they moved to Bergen, New Jersey, and he dreamed of playing football for Notre Dame. He was very athletic, and during that time, he pursued boxing, turning pro at age 21. In 1928, Braddock pulled off a major upset by knocking out highly regarded Tuffy Griffith. The following year, he earned a chance to fight for the title, but he lost to Tommy Lauren, and Braddock was defeated by, uh, Braddock was devastated by the loss and badly fractured his powerful right hand in three different places in the process. His next 33 fights were significantly less successful, some ending even in a no decision contest. His inability to box continued. With his family in stark poverty during the Great Depression, Braddock had to give up boxing for a while, and he worked as a longshoreman. Due to his frequent injuries to his right hand, Braddock compensated by using his left hand during his longshoreman work. And he gradually became stronger in his right and his left hand than in his right. For a time, his children had to live with his wife's family because of their dire circumstances. Braddock always remembered the humiliation of having to accept government relief money during these hard family times. In 1934, Braddock fought John Corn Griffith. He was intended simply as a stepping stone in Griffith's career, but Braddock knocked him out in the third round. Next, Braddock fought John Henry Lewis. And after that, he fought Art Lesky, winning both fights and earning him once again a title shot at the World Heavyweight Championship. A younger Max Bear held the world champion belt. To, uh, that is all before our times, most of, our, most of us before our times, but we might remember Max Bear Jr. I know I do. He was uh, Jethro Bodine on the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. But his father, Max Bear, was a professional world champion boxer, and he had the moniker 
of killer because two men had died in the ring with him while fighting. And uh, he was younger, he was stronger, and he was a 10-to-1 favorite going into the June 13, 1935, Madison Square Garden bowl fight. Braddock was handpicked by Bears handlers, thinking it an easy payday for the champion. Reporters, reporters anxious for Braddock's safety asked him of his concern about fighting Bear with such a reputation. And he said whether it goes one round or ten, it will be a fight all the way. When you've been through what I have faced in the last two years, a Max Bear or a Bengal Tiger looks like a house pet. He might come at me with a cannon or a blackjack, and he would still be a picnic compared to what I've had to face. After winning a unanimous decision, one of the greatest upsets at the time in American boxing, Braddock was asked about the stunning victory. He said, I know what I'm fighting for now. And they said, what's that? And he said, milk money. He would go on to pay back the government the relief money that he used during that time. And he spent the rest of his life helping those in need. He fought under the name J.J. Braddock, a.k.a. Bulldog of Bergen, Pride of the Irish, Cinderella Man. Well, we love these underdog stories, don't we? You know, the, uh, it seems like uh, all hope is lost and then victory prevails. The title of this morning of this sermon is, What Are You Fighting For? And we're in the fight, right? That's a fair question, isn't it? We looked at this man's highs and his lows. He became the 1935 heavyweight champion of the world, but years before had no contest decisions. A no contest decision means that at the end of the day, there wasn't enough energy put out or enough skill to even make a decision. But that changed, didn't it? He got motivated. And... It was pure survival that motivated him. Milk money, food for his children. He, uh, he wanted his manhood back. He needed the creature needs for his family. This morning I want to look at biblical examples of what the fight is about and who's in the fight. And the first one I want to think about this morning is Simon Peter. Peter was a man like you and a man like me. He was a man of the world, but yet he was very religious as well. He was in between his will and the will of God. In Matthew 4, 19 and 20, we read that Jesus said, Follow me, and I'll make you fisher, fishers of men. They immediately left their nets, Matthew says, and they followed him. And Mark 1, 17 and 18, says the same thing, that they immediately left and followed him. You know, that's always struck me a little funny, that how when Jesus said, follow me, they just dropped everything and they followed him. But Luke 5 gives a, a fuller account of that occasion. And we read in uh, Luke 5, verses 1 to 10, and let's go there.
In Luke 5, starting in verse 1, it says, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from there and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have told all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had, got, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So we have a little more, uh, a little more detailed in that, in that, uh, in that story there revealed in, in Luke five. And I want to look at a few things about those ten verses. Peter's experience taught him better than that. He had been out all night. He was, a he was a professional fisherman. He had been out all night and had told the whole night and labored and caught nothing. And uh, they were tired. But he says, if you say we will do it, we'll do it. But in his mind, it was very futile to do so, banking on his experience. And we see that he did so. It was reluctant, but obviously... It was against his better wishes to do this, but he did. And in verse 8, we see that the sign of this great catch made him realize that he was in the presence of God. And he fell to his knees. And he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now, in the context that we read there in Luke chapter 5, he's repenting perhaps from his surly attitude and slowfulness about the Lord's command to launch out. But I believe that he knew something that he thought that the Lord didn't know about him, and that was that he was a sinful man. Well, we all know that about ourselves, don't we? All too well. If we're honest with ourselves, we too are sinful people, aren't we? And we might ask the same question that no doubt Peter was asking. How can you use me? I'm a sinful man. But the deal is God does want you. And he does know that you're a sinful man. But he wants us to change. But he has work for us to do. Just like he did Peter. Verse 10. We see that he says something that was obviously going on. He says, don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Well, fear, what was he afraid of? What are we afraid of? Was he afraid of family and friends, what they might think if he 
changed his pattern of life, changed his thoughts, changed the way he conducted himself. Fear may be what the world would say. You know, to that I say, who cares what the world says? But it's very important, especially our young people. It seems to be very uh, important to them to what their peers and contemporaries have to say about them. Maybe he was afraid of his sinful nature being exposed and uh, before a righteous man like Jesus. Fear of a complete change. What would it look like? You know, if we live a life of sin, you know, we may fool those around us, but we certainly don't feel, fool God and we don't fool ourselves either. But have you ever thought if you're in that shape, what would it be like to make that quantum leap? What would it be like to make that big change? Maybe Peter was thinking about that. And another thing that he asked him, God asked us too. And that's to launch out into the deep. And we're oftentimes reluctant to do so, aren't we? Peter had some work to do about the nature of who he was. And he would have to change. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Luke 22. I want to look at something there about Peter. Peter, understanding that he was a sinful man, but he would go the other way. He was impetuous sometimes, as he's known, and he would be overconfident in himself and what his abilities were and what he could do. And in Luke 22, in verse 31, let's begin there. The Lord said to him, after he had already said he would never forsake the Lord, he would never leave the Lord, and we've all said that, haven't we, at some point in time in our life. But in verse 31, he said to him, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Well, we know that Peter failed in his uh, overassurance and his confidence. We know that he betrayed the Lord out of fear. Three times on that cold night, he said he didn't know him. I don't know him. Remember the young maiden? She said, well, you're a Galilean. Your accent, your voice betrays you. And he said, I never knew him. And the third time that he denied him, he even threw in some good old curse words in there just to signify that he was a man of the world. He didn't know this man, Jesus. And of course, we know that story. The Lord had told him before the rooster crows tonight, you'll deny me three times. Peter heard a rooster crow, and he looked at the Lord. But in this statement here in Luke 22, in these two passages we read, verse 31 and 32, he said, Satan has wanted to sift you. Well, Satan has wanted to sift you and me as well. And many times he has, hasn't he? But he sifted Peter too. And it's a sad statement in verse 32. Very sad. When you've returned to me. The Lord knowing, knowing all things, he knew this. That Peter would fall. He would betray. And he prayed for him in this. But he also prayed for him that he would come back. And we know the good story is that he did. But 
during that time, Peter was separated from the Lord. And we know the chronological time, it was three days. Three days that the Lord was, had departed from this earth, it was in the grave. The last things he knew of Peter prior to this was that he had um, denied his Lord. When would he have a chance to ever redeem himself? When would he ever have a chance to say, I'm sorry? We know one thing for sure, he never forgot it, this betrayal. In verse 32, he says this too, the Lord does. Knowing all things, he said to Peter, but I prayed for you. I wonder how often Christ has prayed for us. Prayed that we would be faithful. Prayed that we would come back. I wonder. In John 21, and if you'll turn there, that'll be the last passage we'll look on this man, Peter. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, there's some events that go on there concerning this. And in that chapter, first of all, let's recognize that this is the third time that the resurrected Lord, did you hear me? The resurrected Lord, this is the third time that he appears to the disciples after his resurrection. And in John 21, Jesus shows himself there at the Sea of Tiberias. And they have done what they've done before. Peter had decided that he would go fishing. You know, their Lord was, his life was taken from them. He was buried, he arose, they had seen him two other occasions, but it was like he was in limbo. It was like he forgot what the Lord said he was going to make him, a fisher of men. And he tells those disciples, six that were with him, that are named there, four are named and two others are not named, but six disciples and Peter, and Peter said, I'm going fishing. And so they joined him, they said, we'll go too, and so they had gone. And it's Luke 5 all over again, they had told all night, and they had caught nothing. And um, it's kind of ironic to me, three years has passed. Three years he'd been with the Lord. It started off, they were fishing all night and caught nothing. The Lord said, launch out into the deep, and reluctantly, and probably with a surly attitude he did, and they caught such great fish that it was a miracle, and, and Peter saw it and recognized that he was with God. And, and came to grips with who he was, a sinful man. And here, three years later, we see this a repeat of the same thing. He's fished all night, he's caught nothing, and he's headed to the bank. And they see a man at this point. They see a man on the, bo on the bank, and he has a fire. It's crack of dawn. He has a fire, and he's cooking fish, and we find out later he has fish and he has bread. And as they get close, 200 cubics, which is not far from here to the cars in the parking lot, close enough that they can hear this man's voice. And this man cries out from the bank, cast your net on the right side. And so they do. And that close to the bank, and all of a sudden, the nets are full of huge fish. And... A light is going off on this, in their head. Could this be the Lord? And so well, they get to the bank and no one asks because they know it's the Lord. And no one asks. And like so many times in our lives, some sins need to be dealt with. Some of your sins need to be dealt with. 
And some of my sins have been dealt with. And we need to be true unto ourselves about the things that are going on in our life. The Lord set him down there and he admonished Peter because of the betrayal. Simon, do you love me more than these? Three times he'll ask that question. Three times Peter will answer, Lord, you know I love you. But he uses a different tense with each question of love. The tense of the Greek in love changes three times when he asks him. And it hurts Peter very much that the Lord admonishes him in such a way. And each time with his answer to the affirmative, yes, Lord, I love you, what's his answer? Feed my sheep. Because remember, he was to be a fisherman of what? Of men. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And he needed to be restored. He needed to be admonished. He needed to be uh, be restored because he had a great job ahead of Peter. And there we pick it up in chapter 21, starting in verse 18. The Lord said, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wish. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, and I often think about this, when he had spoken this, Maybe for a moment he paused to let that soak into Peter. And it would be a lot to soak in. You're going to die like I did for this cause. And when he let it soak in, then he told him, follow me. Now, I want to say something on our behalf, and then I want to say something on the behalf of Peter. We know to follow Christ. We know to master our sins. We know what we're fighting for, I hope. But Peter was told to follow him. And Peter had to fight against his sinful nature. We can see through God's glorious word that he was transformed through this partnership with Jesus Christ. And he overcame his sinful nature. Not overnight, but through patience and through time afforded by God's grace and the newfound will to follow his Lord. Here's the thing that Peter had. And I would say, that's the reason I paused to think about that. I would say we don't have that, but we do. Who was Peter talking to? He said, well, Peter was talking to the Lord. But it was even greater than that. Peter was talking to a resurrected Lord. Do you know how powerful that had to be? He could have said, I saw you naked, bloodied, beat, scourged, a crown of thorns on your head. I saw them after your death take a spear and rivet your side and water and blood came forth signifying that you were a dead man. I saw them bring you down from the cross. I saw those women weep. I saw those things. You were dead. And now he's talking to a resurrected Lord. Do you understand that we have that same thing? Because we have this story, if we believe. Your body. And in my case, I was just looking yesterday. This crepe paper body of mine. One day is going to be resurrected. And my body will be like his body. And we're going to live forever. 
Do you know how powerful that is? I'll tell you how powerful it is. Regardless what may befall you in life, if you're a Christian, regardless what may have befall Peter, and we know it wasn't good later in his life, he's going to live again. You're going to live again with this body. Changed, of course. This body is mortal. It'll be changed to immortal. But do you realize how powerful that is? It ought to make us be able to go through any fires of this earth knowing that this body will be raised. Well, he did. He overcame these things. He became a great man for the Lord, even though he knew and the Lord knew he had a sinful nature about him. What was he fighting for? Fighting to change these things, and he did. The next example, and I'm looking at our time. We have time for it. The next example is Saul, the man from Tarsus. You know, we first read about him in Acts 7, verse 58. There he is, a young man, it calls him, and he's guarding the clothes of those, the outer garments that were taken off where they could really throw the stones. He's guarding those outer garments as those men stone the martyred Stephen to death. Next we read about him in Acts 8 and verse 3. As for Saul, Saul saw something in there that he shouldn't have seen. He should have seen something else. You know, the, the, the Bible says, the Holy Scripture says that in the face of Stephen before he died, he had the face of an angel. And he looked, remember he looked and he said he saw the Son of God standing on the right hand of God. Well, here this man Saul, he saw that and he got the wrong, he got the wrong move from that, the wrong message. You know what it caused him to do? It says in verse 3 of chapter 8 that he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Next, we read about him in Acts 9. Let's go there and look at a few verses there. In Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1, we'll read the first five verses. Then Saul, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were in the, of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground, and he heard, a voice, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, what is a goad? I know we've heard it many times. It was a stick. It was a club. It had a sharp point on it. It, it was something of that nature. And uh, if you've ever seen someone work a, a pair of oxen, which I've not, but maybe some of you older ones had, they use a goad to punch the beast of burden. And what the goad does is you punch the beast, it sends them in the right direction, the direction in which they are to go. And he says, Saul, it's hard for you, isn't it, kicking against the goads. What was he kicking against? The right direction. He should have been going this way, but he's kicking against that. And uh, Paul was a different sort. I want you to know that. Paul was a radical. He really was. You can, you can see it in his life that the, where the word has revealed that and in his writing somewhat. Paul was a true zealot blinded by the traditions of the fathers in his teaching. 
Even his great rabbinic teacher, Gamaliel, wasn't as radical as Paul. Gamaliel said concerning the apostles in Acts 5, verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Well, that's what he was doing, wasn't he? You know, what we forget about this sometimes is when we, when something bad happens to the body of Christ, that's what the church is, isn't it? The body of Christ. Then something bad has happened to Jesus, hasn't it? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Who was he persecuting? Christians that called on the name of Christ. Throwing them in prison. And we'll find out later, even giving consent to their death. And Jesus said, you're kicking against the goals. I've thought about that many, many times, about that kicking of the goads. You know, the Bible can, can say the greatest meaning in the smallest of words. I think that Paul was seeing things that should have motivated him. I think Paul was seeing things that should have changed his heart, should have changed his mind. How had Stephen died? Had he died violently? Him trying to kill someone in the sanity? No, he died peacefully as far as he was concerned. They were the violent ones. They drug him out and they stoned him to death. How many people had Paul seen go to prison? Carried them there themselves. They didn't fight. They didn't struggle. They submitted and went, and we know they went to their death. He had seen, he had seen things. There's an indication there to me that he had seen things that should have made him reconcile his actions. You know, many years later, he would say before the great king Agrippa, Herod, in Acts 26, 9 through 11, he said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and, was, um, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and uh, compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them even to foreign cities. But he changed, didn't he? Blinded by the traditions of his father, he was also blinded by the great light of Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. Paul would soon find out what he was fighting for. And what he was fighting for there's so many that need to fight today for this. And you know what it was? And it's so remarkable that God, to me, would use a man like him. He was fighting for a change in theology. His, the his theology was passe. It had been fulfilled. He was hanging on to the law and the traditions of the Pharisee, the traditions of the Father. And that was over. That day had come and gone. It was a new era. And yet he was hanging on. How often do we do that? The religions of our parents, the religions of our forefathers, we hang on to them and they're incorrect. They're not the way. They're not what God is intended. You know, he was uh, at the crossroad of right and wrong. What would he do? Would he follow the traditions of the fathers? Or would he follow God wherever it would lead him? You know, we see in... Philippians 3, 8, and 9. So ironic. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, he says, 
and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is in the law, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I said ironic because here he is. That was written. That's a prison epistle written in Philipp, uh, written to the Philippian people. And Paul's in prison when he's writing that. And the irony is this. What had he done in his early life? He had put people in prison awaiting their death and cast his vote for their death. And where does he find himself? In prison. And we know sooner or later awaiting death as well. And he became those people that he had persecuted. He had been converted. He had changed. And he now believed in the same thing that he had persecuted all those years. And then our scripture from this morning, 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. What a change it made in him. He figured out what he was fighting for. But that's important to realize he had to change his religion. He had to change his theology. And we thank God that such a man did because he was so important to the lives of Christians. Tonight, I would ask you to come back. We're going to look at a total different man. Not Saul of Tarsus, but we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and uh, him, being a, him being the apostle to the Gentiles. What that means, what it means then, and what it means today for us. If we had more time this morning, we're running out of time, but if we had more time this morning, we could use many more biblical examples of people that fought this good fight. We looked at a man that was so motivated by poverty and shame that he fought back and became a world champion boxer. He regained his manhood and his family, and he never again forgot what he was fighting for. We looked at Simon Peter, a self-willed man who was somewhere between his will and the will of God, his realization of his sinful nature and his shortcomings, his fears, he overcame. These, he came back after the fall, and he fought to overcome his sinful nature. We looked at Paul, a man once uh, opposed to Christianity. He believed in a different theology. He had to change, and the goads, did lead him to the right direction, didn't they? What are you fighting for this morning? We like the Cinderella man. We're fighting for our survival, but it's not physical survival. It's spiritual survival in this world that we live in today. Like Peter, we need to fight against our sinful nature and overcome it and uh, submit our will to his will. Like Paul, if we believed in the wrong theology, we need to fight against that. And believe and accept the truth. And the truth is this. That we need to confess his name before men. And we need to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We need to repent of our sins, those things that alienate us and separate us from God. He said in Luke 13, 3, repent or you will likewise perish. And then we need to be baptized. We need to call upon the name of the Lord, wash away our sins. We need to reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. And then we need to rise out of that and walk in the newness of life. You know, 
oftentimes we don't say this, but I want to say this this morning. If you leave here today and you have a question about this, please see me or others here. We'd love to talk to you about it. I wouldn't want you to be confused on anything. The answers are here. All we have to do is diligently search them, and they're there for us. What are you fighting for this morning? I hope you're fighting for the just cause of Christianity and the great reward that accompanies it. This morning, I don't know where you're at, but you do. You know what fight you're in or what fight you're not. But I know we're here to help you, and we want to help you if we can. And you can do that this morning as we stand and as we sing.